Welcome to this edition of Community Matters Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss issues important to managing and governing condominiums, cooperatives, and homeowner associations. I'm Tony Campisi, Executive Director of CAI's Pennsylvania and Delaware Valley Chapter. Today's episode is all about tough decisions, specifically the tough decisions that have had to be made by community association boards and managers during this ongoing pandemic. We're now about a year into the coronavirus pandemic and association boards and managers are continuing to be confronted by the issues and decisions surrounding reopening facilities, common areas, clubhouses, pools, fitness centers, and how to communicate those decisions to their owners. Joining me today are John Katz and George Greatrex with the law firm of Hill Wallach. John is the current board president of our chapter of CAI, and George is currently the chair of CAI's New Jersey Legislative Action Committee. So George and John, welcome to the podcast. And uh, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about Hill Wallach? So Tony, first, thanks for having us. We appreciate the opportunity to talk to all of your listeners about this important topic. Hill Wallach is a uh, over 70 attorney law firm. We're a full service law firm. In our community association group, we have 13 attorneys. We have offices in Cherry Hill where George is normally. Um, I'm in Princeton. We also have offices in Yardley, Pennsylvania, as well as North Jersey. Thank you, John. So as I mentioned in the introduction, um, pandemic's been going on for just about a year now. Vaccines are rolling out, picking up speed, fortunately. Uh, Case counts are dropping. And there's a general sense, I think, that maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Is it enough though for a community association board to adopt a position that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, therefore it's now safe for us to reopen our clubhouse or our our common room, our amenities, or do they need to do more uh, due diligence on that question? So that's a great question. And before I answer, let me just give a quick disclaimer. Obviously we're gonna be talking about a lot of legal issues today. So I don't want anybody to construe this as legal advice. Obviously, if you have a specific question about your community association or reopening your facilities, please speak to your association's attorney, or you can feel free to reach out to either me or George. But to answer your question, um, it's important to realize that associations and boards have a general duty and obligation to protect the residents from dangerous conditions. Normally, when we talk about dangerous conditions, we're talking about potholes or trip hazards like sidewalks. Um, But it's important to also understand that dangerous conditions can be a pandemic like we're in right now with COVID-19. Boards need to consider that duty, as well as the general duty to protect the association's financial well-being. And I'm sure we're going to talk today about insurance or lack thereof for COVID-related cases. So boards need also to think about making sure they are taking affirmative actions to protect the association from being sued. And if that means keeping the clubhouse or the pool closed, I believe that's what they should be doing. Yeah, and I can, I can add to that, Tony, that um, 
you know, last year at this uh, this time, going into the early spring, the main question on everybody's mind was, well, what are we going to do about the pool and the amenities? Should we open it? And, and you know, we had a full conversation with, with our clients back then about that issue. And, and now, uh, a, a year later, the question is, well, what about this coming season? Uh, aren't there enough changes out there that would now allow us to open up our amenities? And 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 the answer is is that yes, there are some changes. There are some good developments that are happening. But but really, the the bottom line of it is is that the main considerations that a board has to take into consideration, it, they really haven't changed all that much. Uh, there still is no insurance. Um, there is no immunity for associations. And uh, frankly, the vaccines based on the pace of the rollout right now, we're not gonna have even half of, of our population in New Jersey uh, inoculated by the late summer. So, um, so while some things are positive, we're moving in a positive direction, the, the considerations are still very serious and, and boards have to take those, those considerations uh, seriously. So George, let me let me let's dive a little deeper on this question here. Is the conversation is it a universal conversation regarding all amenities, or does the conversation change? For example, when we're talking about opening a fitness center, where there's intense activity and heavy breathing and that sort of thing, versus maybe a community, a library or a game room where you know it's a different type of activity is is, is the conversation the same uh it's a it's a good point tony and the answer is no it's not um it's it's this isn't a one-size-fits-all type of a situation and the interesting thing too is over the past year we've learned a lot about the virus and how it's transmitted and we, we are certainly, not just we, but the state officials and, and the healthcare officials are, are actually learning as we go and are treating the virus differently based on what we've learned. And so, for instance, we were very concerned about pools last year, um, and yet pools uh, are outside as opposed to clubhouses and fitness centers being inside where, uh, where the... Um, stream of, of uh, the environment, the air is, is different inside than it is from the outside. So we really do need to look at each of the amenities slightly differently and make sure that we are considering all of the different aspects of where the activity or where the amenity is and what type of activity is happening inside there. George, let me ask you about the vaccines. We've heard in the media, uh, talk of things like a travel passport, vaccine passport for people who want to travel. Would you advise a community association board to require proof of vaccination for entry into the clubhouse or a common room or other common facility? Or is that getting too far into private health data? Well, that's not really the reason. Uh, I, I think that at this point, I'm not advising um, my clients to uh, require vaccinations, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't consider it. And uh, right now, you know, we're in we're in February, and we know that again, based upon the uh, the rollout of the vaccine, we know that we're not going to get anywhere near even 50% of our population immunized by the by the summertime. So, um, you know, the 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 answer has to be that. Are you really, as an association, going to require uh, entry 
uh, or require proof of uh, a vaccination in order to enter into one of the amenities when you have such a small percentage of our population that has that has been immunized. Not to mention the fact that it raises all kinds of legal implications, whether it be uh, health-related issues with a person who can't get the vaccine for health reasons, whether or not a person won't get the vaccine because of religious reasons. There's many different things that have to be considered. And if, if, you if it turns out that you do require it, then you run the risk of claims of discrimination uh, against those people that can't take uh, get the vaccination for whatever that, that valid reason would be. John, what do you think? So George and I agree on this, um, and George made a lot of really great points. I just want to point out that you know this is something that has been debated and probably will be debated for a long time. George and I had the pleasure of attending CAI's um, virtual law seminar at the end of January, and this probably was one of the hottest topics that was discussed. And, and I think there's lots of good arguments for and against it, but it's really a slippery slope type of question. You know, if you start requiring vaccines for COVID, do we have to also require vaccines for the flu or for other things? And again, I think it gets into real dangerous territory for the reasons that George mentions about personal health information, um, possible discrimination. You know, one of the other issues that I don't think George mentioned was children. We don't know when vaccines are going to be available for children. So uh, we just don't know at this point. So I guess the answer really is, you know, for right now, I, we're recommending, like George said, we're not recommending that our associations require vaccines if they are opening up their facilities, but we never know. I mean, that may change in six months from now. So we're just going to have to see how it plays out. Let's turn to the question of liability. Uh, has any state adopted a law that provides immunity from COVID-related lawsuits? And if not, how does this change the thinking about whether or when to open common facilities. So I'm gonna give a plug for CAI National's website. If you go on that website and click on their adv advocacy page, they have all kinds of legislative priorities, including COVID-19. And it actually talks and tracks um, COVID-19 liability legislation. So according to that website, there are 12 states that have already passed some sort of liability legislation. And I'll just list them real quick. Georgia, Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Nevada, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Utah. Um, as you know, Tony, in Pennsylvania, the LAC is working with our lobbyists on a bill that was introduced last session that didn't necessarily uh, define community associations the way that we wanted them to. So the LAC and our lobbyists met with the sponsor of that legislation and is currently working with, that, with the lobbyists and with the sponsor to make sure that community associations are specifically included in any legislation, if it does pass, um, our understanding at this point is that that bill has not been reintroduced, but we're hopeful that it will be in the near future. And I know George has been working with the New Jersey LAC on some legislation that he's going to talk about. We have, John, and and um, you know, it's it's was really uh, an issue that we heard an awful lot about in the early fall as as to whether or not New Jersey was going to consider an immunity uh, bill for common interest communities and. So the lack, uh, you know, we, we jumped into action and, and we found sponsors uh, to introduce a bill uh, in the assembly that would prevent lawsuits uh, against common interest communities for COVID related uh, injuries. Uh, the problem is that we have not yet been able to find a sponsor in the Senate 
And uh, in the meantime, we have actually had uh, sit-downs face-to-face on Zoom with both the Senate president as well as the assembly speaker. And the impression that they were giving us was that there is, and this is their language, there isn't much of an appetite for immunity legislation in the New Jersey legislature. They feel that it sends the wrong message. Um, There have in fact been a number of immunity bills that have been introduced, whether it be for healthcare workers or sports uh, officials, uh, you name it. And only one of them has passed so far and it was for the healthcare workers. So we we are trying to separate ourselves uh, from those other groups. For instance, we're nonprofit entities and our residents pay for these amenities and yet they can't use them for fear of of lawsuits against the association. So we're we're still pursuing, um, but we know that it's an uphill battle. So in the meantime, the answer is there's no state law nor federal law that gives associations that kind of immunity from lawsuits. So we're, we're, uh, we're still out there exposed in the event that we open our amenities and somebody gets sick and sues us. So in the absence of such legislation, what about a waiver of liability? You know, let's say a board decides they're going to open the clubhouse, but they're going to require homeowners to sign a waiver of liability before they can enter and use the facilities. Does that change anything? It does. It helps. Um, And and I can tell you that we do recommend to our clients that they utilize those um, and to make sure that they include what we call assumption of risk language in in them. Here's the the problem, though. They're they're not foolproof. Uh, The court cases in New Jersey have been all over the place. Some judges in some county courts will uphold waivers of liabilities and others won't. And, um, and so what we have found is the more narrowly that they are drawn, the more effective that they can be and the greater chance that a court will, will approve it and enforce it. Um, but we also have to understand that just because someone signs a piece of paper um, saying, I won't hold the association responsible, doesn't mean that that person still can't sue. And in fact, um, many will probably still sue and try to prove that the association was grossly negligent, which as we know is going to be an exception to those waivers. So do we recommend them? Yes. Are they foolproof? No. It has to be part of an overall approach that's going to minimize the, the liability as best we can. Yeah, and just to add on to that, just for anybody who may not be familiar with the term liability waiver or assumption of risk, what we're talking about is just a legal document um, that's signed by a person who participates in an activity, basically acknowledging and assuming that um, the risk of of being involved in that participation. So like when you go to a gym or when I take my kids to the trampoline place, um, basically it attempts to remove legal liability from a person or the business responsible for the activity. Um, like George said, there's a lot of issues with that. One, you know, the exception is that gross negligence. Um, I also mentioned the assumption of risk. As George is aware, there's a case out of Virginia um, involving a community association. And, and in Virginia, they, they don't allow liability waivers, but they have these assumption of risk forms that are, that are allowed. And in that case, the association was successful in, in, uh, in a case where the, the owner wanted to use the pool um, but they refused to allow him to use the pool until he signed that assumption of risk form. 
And then, like I said, the court upheld that. So again, you know, we, we're kind of delving into those issues as to are the waivers going to be upheld? But even if you require somebody to sign a waiver, like George mentioned, it's no, there's no guarantee that that person isn't going to sue. And then we run into the problem, which we talked about earlier, about insurance. George, I want to ask you about, um, about lawsuits that you may have seen get filed, I guess, either by homeowners who are upset. Again, now we're a year into this. They're upset because they're paying for common facilities that the board is telling them they cannot use and vice versa. Have you seen lawsuits against an association that did open facilities uh, and someone got sick? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that that John and I and other practitioners have have been harping on is is the you know the liability for lawsuits. If um, obviously our main concern is that our people don't get sick, but what happens if they do and they sue the association, or what happens if we don't open and they sue us for that? Um, so what we have learned so far is, fortunately. In New Jersey, anyway, there have not been um, many at all lawsuits filed against the associations for someone who had gotten sick because they went to the pool. And that there may be a couple reasons for that. Number one is there's a two-year statute of limitations in New Jersey, so they don't have to bring the lawsuit for at least for up to two years from when they got sick. But also, um, it's 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 likely that so many of uh, New Jersey's amenities were closed. I, the last uh, percentage I saw was 84% of amenities in New Jersey were not opened last year. That may very well be the reason why there haven't been very many, if, if any, lawsuits filed against the association. So I, I, while it's encouraging, it, isn't, it certainly isn't something that we should hang our hat on as a reason to open. And now, interestingly, you also raised what happens when we when an association gets sued because they didn't open the pool. And that has, in fact, happened with one of the associations that I represent just recently, um, a person who who uh, was upset that they couldn't use the pool, uh, sued the association for reimbursement of what uh, the, the person decided was their allocated share of the cost of the pool and also claimed that the association has to reimburse him for having to go down the street to a public um, pool uh, and, and pay for a membership there so that his kids could go swimming when otherwise they would have gone swimming at, at the condo association. Uh, we're, we're opposing that vigorously for uh, any number of reasons, but, but certainly not the least of which is um, just because the pool doesn't open doesn't mean that the association still doesn't have costs with regard to maintaining the pool and the rest of, of the amenities. And also what we have to understand is, is that um, a, an amenity is a privilege of membership. It's not a right of ownership. There is no, this, this, uh, this person who, who filed suit didn't have a right to a pool. And uh, therefore the association doesn't have the obligation to reimburse that person for a private pool membership. Uh, but those are arguments that we're going to make to uh, the judge in the case, and uh, we'll, you know, keep you posted on on the uh, on on the result. But again, yes, that is a possibility that an association could get sued for that. Um, right now, we believe that those types of claims are covered under DNO insurance, directors and officers insurance. But there is some some question about that, so that's not a guarantee. 
No, no easy answers here. But John, let me ask you, um, as cases ease and vaccines become more widespread, do you think this will get any easier? Does this mean that the risk is lower and therefore it might become more tolerable for a board? So like George mentioned before, you know, I think that we haven't really seen the full effect because of the statute of limitations. So even though in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and around the, the country, we haven't seen a tremendous amount of cases um, alleging that someone got COVID because the associations have opened amenities. That's happened for a couple of reasons. One, because like I said, you know, they have some time to file that. And two, like George mentioned, because a lot of the amenities, especially in, you know, the Pennsylvania and um, New Jersey area, they haven't opened. But, you know, we do have some clients who have opened on a limited basis, whether that's their clubhouse or their gym or certainly outdoor facilities like tennis courts. And I think that, you know, like we mentioned before, it's going to have to see how things play out. Um, as George mentioned previously, there really, from our perspective, there hasn't been a lot of changes from what the association needs to consider in terms of their duty. And again, I'll harp again on the insurance issue, because what happens, like George just mentioned, if, if the board decides not to open up their amenities and they get sued, there may be coverage under their DNO insurance. However, if the association does open their amenities, clubhouse, gym, you know, whatever the case may be, and someone makes a claim that they got sued, uh, some, sorry, someone makes a claim that they got COVID because the association opened the facility and didn't comply with all the CDC and other regulations, we run into the issue where um, they may not have insurance for that. And like we talked about before, even if they have a waiver, that's not gonna stop somebody from suing and we may end up in a situation where we're litigating the waiver, which because there's no insurance can cost associations thousands and thousands of dollars, even if ultimately they end up winning the case. And, you know, from my perspective, I think the association has a very good chance of winning that case. But at the end of the day, they may be out a considerable amount, considerable amount of money, which is a reason why they don't necessarily want to take that risk. And Tony, further to answer your question about whether or not the risk is tolerable, that, you know, in the in the final analysis, that's the decision that every board has to make: is do the do the do the costs and risks of opening the amenities outweigh the benefits that are derived to uh, by the members for having the pool open? While I we all completely understand that that summers get hot here in Jersey and we wanna have a pool to go to. But the question for the board is, is that benefit, the fact that our members want to be able to go to their pools uh, and use their clubhouses, uh, are, are those benefits outweighed by the risks that, that John and I have been talking about uh, during this podcast? Yeah, and I suspect that conversation might change if, if there's a case that uh, decides that the DNO policy is not gonna cover board members who, who make these decisions, that could, that could sharply change the terms of the debate, I guess. I mentioned a couple times now, we're a year into this and people's, uh, clear, people are clearly frustrated. They're tired of wearing the masks and they're tired of social distancing, not being able to use the facilities. And I'm sure you've both seen this in the associations that you advise um, George, what would you advise one of your boards that's simply had enough? They, they, they're tired of hearing from their owners who are demanding the facilities be opened uh, and they decide they're going to they're going to move ahead. They're going to open the clubhouse. They're going to open the pool. 
Um, they're going to go back to normal. What steps would you advise that they take to minimize the risk and manage the liability? Yeah, that's 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 really the the, the main focus, isn't it, Tony? And and we 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 get it. We appreciate the fact that these boards, listen, they're volunteers. Um, they're having to govern their neighbors in a way that doesn't get their neighbors angry at them, and it's tough. Um, especially as the, the longer this pandemic drags on, the, the harder it's going to be for boards to, uh, to be able to withstand the pressure that their residents bring to them. So if they do decide, if the board does decide that they want to uh, open the amenities, uh, it's a it has to be a multi-pronged approach. Can't just be, there's no magic bullet. Uh, first of all, obviously, the boards are going to want to consult with their with their professionals, with their lawyers, their insurance agents, with their pool operators, with their cleaning services, with the managers. Uh, it has to be a team approach and all aspects have to be considered. But if, if after doing all of that, um, they decide they're going to open. So there's a number of things that they ought to, that they ought to uh, check into. Number one is whether or not their association documents have the tort immunity provision which prevents the, uh, the members and their spouses from filing suit against the, or for, for, for prevailing on a claim against an association um, for injuries that they receive due to the negligence of the association. Uh, also, we've talked about waivers, but we recommend waivers even though they're not guaranteed. Um, I would recommend that they have uh, assumption of the risk signs posted at the entrances to the pools, to the, to the facilities, to the clubhouses, to the tennis courts, you name it. And that sign should say, you enter at your own risk, that the association cannot guarantee your safety. The association certainly has an obligation to do the best they can, uh, but they can't guarantee the safety. And then, of course, they must, an association must make its best efforts to strictly enforce all of the health guidelines that uh, they are subject to. And that's the federal CDC, the state department of health, and even the local health departments in your town. There's an awful lot of, of regulations that are out there and the associations must make their very best efforts to comply with them. Again, there's no guarantee and every unit owner must understand that but the association does in fact have the obligation to do that. So I agree with everything that George just said. I just wanna make a real quick comment about the tort immunity statute. That is a law that is specific to New Jersey and does not apply to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania or other states. So I just want people to keep that in mind when they're talking to their professionals about that issue. So John, final question for you, and this is really related to what I just asked George. Um, but, but I guess the opposite point of view where, how would you advise a, a board that is standing firm? You know, they, they are hearing the same complaints from the homeowners about paying for amenities that they're not allowed to use, but they are standing firm and saying, we're not going to open until, you know, we're absolutely convinced it's safe to do so. And this pandemic is in the rearview mirror. What, what, how, how would you advise a board like that? to communicate with their, with their owners? So this, this, this specific question has come up a lot in our associations, especially last year when we made that decision not to open the pool for most of the associations we represent. And like you said, Tony, communication is really the most important issue here. Um, back during that time, and I expect that we'll be doing this as we get closer to pool season this year, 
we had a lot of Zoom meetings where we had basically an open forum where the board would explain to um, the membership along with, you know, whether it's your insurance professionals or your legal professionals, the costs involved um, of actually operating the pool with all the additional cleaning thing, you know, following CDC requirements that George had mentioned. And really, you know, once we kind of talked through with the association, there was less um, opposition to not opening the pool. Now there's always gonna be some people, you know, we'll call them the vocal minority who are opposed to that. And like George had said in the case that he's dealing with where, you know, thinks that they're entitled to a reimbursement. But in my experience, talking through these issues with the membership, making them understand the additional risks and the additional costs that are involved really is helpful to making sure everybody understands that we're moving forward again to, to go back to the original statement, you know, for that association to make make sure that they're, um, you know, following all the requirements and they're they're really living up to the duty that they have to protect the association. And I'll and I'll follow up with what John just said and and he he touched on it a few times, but we we can't stress enough that communication is the key. Uh, to these types of decisions and these types of tough situations that boards and their membership find themselves in. The boards must be able to communicate loudly and often to their members as to what the different considerations are, how some of them have changed, but how many of them have stayed the same. And, um, and the, the boards are, these are tough decisions that boards are making and they certainly don't want to make them in a vacuum. They don't want to tell their residents that this is their decision without the residents having been involved in the discussion. I want to ask one final question, uh, jump in either one of you. Do you see this having an impact on whether or not uh, members of the boards, and, and one of you said it, I think George said it, that these, these individuals serve voluntarily. Is this having an impact on keeping them on the board, their willingness to continue to serve? And is that a problem coming down the road that our communities are gonna to have to deal with? I can only speak anecdotally about it. I think there were a number of boards that I, that I consulted last, last spring when we were going through the decisions of whether or not to open the amenities that uh, a number of them actually resigned from the board because they just couldn't take the, the, the pressure. And I, and I understand that. But then interestingly, on the flip side of that, uh, we have, from what I've been seeing and hearing, there, have been, there has actually been an, a, an increase in the number of people interested in running for election to their boards uh, because either they hold a particular opinion that they want to make sure is heard uh, and followed, or they just want to be involved because they, because they see um, how important these decisions are. What about you, John? What have you been hearing? Yeah, there's definitely, um, you know, even in, in good times, there's, it's sometimes it's tough to get people to serve on their boards. And this certainly hasn't made it any easier. But I'll agree with George that we certainly have seen a tremendous amount of participation, whether that's because we're doing meetings by Zoom and people can do it from their, the comfort of their own home or otherwise. So we've definitely seen an increase in, in participation in meetings. Um, and I think it varies from association to association, whether or not you're getting those people like George mentioned, who are more interested in, in how their associations are running because now they at least understand or have been to a meeting and they wanna be more involved. Well, John and George, thank you again for joining me for this episode of Community Matters Podcast. This is a very timely topic 
and I believe our members and our listeners will get a lot of valuable information from it. If you'd like to find out more about Hill Wallach Law Firm, please visit their website at www.hillwallach.com, and that's H-I-L-L-W-A-L-L-A-C-K.com. And for more resources and best practices on managing and governing your condominium, homeowners association, or cooperative, please visit CAI at www.cai-padelval.org. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Community Matters Podcast.